Hey, I'm Matt. I'm Chad. I'm Tyler. We're Radio Silence. I'm Tom, and this is The Crawl. Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Crawl. Today, we're continuing our conversation with Brian Witten, which we started last week. We talked with him about uh, his experiences at New Line, and now we're going to talk to him about his transition into working at Paramount, including some projects with Tom Cruise, like Vanilla Sky and Mission Impossible 3. And then we get to talk to him about moving into the independent realm as well, where he's worked with the likes of Oren Pelly. He actually recently did a Stephen King adaptation starring Sam Jackson and John Cusack. And we get to talk to him just a little bit as well about some of his future projects coming out. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the second part of our interview with Brian Witten. And how long were you at Paramount? Five years. So you were five years at New Line, five years at Paramount. How many? Yeah, there's a pattern here. How many yeah. movies? How many movies comparatively did you see produced at both of those jobs, respectively? Uh, probably double at New Line. I don't remember yeah. what it was, but at Paramount we made less movies. Well, I'll tell you another. You were mentioning before that we were all, and I, it, it's too simple to say the same team at, at New Line, but and not at Paramount. But but I remember when I came to Paramount, I was a fan, like. The reason I went, I, I left at, to Paramount was, I thought, a better opportunity, but, but they were going to give me uh, Vanilla Sky was my first project. Hmm. And so they used that like as a lure. So Cameron Crowe, Tom Cruise, who are two yeah. of my freaking idols. Like, and so that would be my first project. So I, I was like, yeah, I'm a fa- I'm a, I love movies, so I, I'm <laughs> yeah. a fanboy. And so I remember we, you know, we worked on that. And... Um, then we started shooting, and I had met Tom and Cameron and everybody, and it was a whole process to get to you know into that world, but it was all fine. And then I kept asking Paula Wagner, who was Tom's producing partner and the producer, when can I come by the set? I want to come by the set. And it would always be like, ah, oh, tonight's not a good night. It's not a good night. Not a good time. So one Friday, my wife, ex-wife, was out of town with the kids. <laughs> do I call her ex-wife or do I wife I mean, at I the time? Think, I don't think it really matters. What are you? <laughs> but she was in back east with the kids, so I had nothing to do on a Friday night. We're shooting on a soundstage right on Paramount, and I'm like, fuck this. I'm going to just show up on the set. Everyone knows me. I'm just I'm not going to ask for her permission. I'm going to show up. So I just came over, hung out, so I can't even watch the shooting. It was I don't remember the scene. I think it was where he was in um, the prison scene. You know, we had the mask on him or something. And so the night's over, see Cameron, whatever. So Tom comes over and looks at me right in the eye and he shakes my hand. He says, good to see you here, Brian. Hey, you know, he didn't say good to see you. He goes, hey, Brian, good to see you. So they got you watching us on a Friday night, huh? I mean, really like... He maybe there was a little chit chat, but not much. You go, so they you, they got you right, over you're here watching for the studio, and I go and I lie. I go, what do you mean? No, I'm. It's it's I'm it's here. A movie. I'm, 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 I'm a, it's a Friday night, and my kids. I wanted to come over. I'm a fanboy. I mean, I'm working with you and Cameron Crowe. I'm a fanboy. I'm not here to like spot. I don't remember what I had told him, and he goes, uh huh. And then you know we had a little conversation, but that was his initial thought was I'm there I'm spying on them 
now by the end of the shoot, I would just keep showing up, and by the end, he realized I'm, you know, I'm not that guy, and I'm, I'm a fanboy. But that, but that was the kind of the the tip off that that was like kind of the culture of how the studio interacted with its productions. Totally, absolutely different than at, at New Line. New Line, no one would ever say, "Oh, you're watching." They got you watching. Right, you were actually welcome in the room at New Line. Like that was a part of the process. Yes. Yeah. That was a really good Tom and Cruise, Tom Cruise impersonation, though. I like the voice. <laughs> but that's not a, a funny yeah. Tom Cruise story. So, so, um, so I was working on that movie, and you know, Tom knew me, and and um, then he had done um, Last Samurai. So went to the premiere, and I liked the movie, and I tried to get to him and say it was a good movie. It was well overwhelmed with people. I didn't. So the next morning, I got into the office, and I call his office, and I leave a message with his assistant. Hey, it's Brian Winton. Just want to say I love the movie. Tom was kind of overwhelmed. I didn't want to bother him, but just let him know it was a great movie, and thanks for inviting me. So later that day, I'm in my office, and my office door's closed, and my we had these things called Amtels, which were like, so you could send messages back and forth to the assistant to me. And, we oh, didn't like, have text, messenger. like text message. Text message, exactly. <laughs> but so... Um, my assistant texts me, Tom Cruise, he, no, he comes running to my office and he goes, Tom Cruise is on line three. And I'm like, sure, Tom Cruise yeah. is on line three. And he goes, no, Tom Cruise. And so um, uh, J.C. Spinks, who right. I knew from at New Line because he was this producer, Warren Zide's assistant. And so I would call, when I would call Warren, I would pretend to be somebody I wasn't to get Warren immediately on the phone. <laughs> and I would always get J.C. in trouble because J.C. would like get yelled at by Warren. So JC would fuck around with my assistant and say he was Tom Cruise to get me on to get me on the phone immediately and I'd pick up. So this time I'm like, sure, it's Tom Cruise. I'm thinking it's JC. I pick up the phone and they, and, and I go, hello, and he goes, it's Tom Cruise. Is this Brian? I go, aha, uh-huh, this is Tom Cruise. <laughs> and he goes, and then he's like dumbfounded on the other end of the phone. He goes, no, no, it's this is Tom Cruise. And I go, sure, Tom. <laughs> if, if this is really you, you were on David Letterman last night. You told a story about your son. What was it? And he goes, well, I told the story about how I was running around the coffee table trying to get my son. Oh, and your stomach just sinks. And so I was like, like, fuck. Oh. <laughs> well, this is actually Brian Witten. I'm like, yeah. Tom, I'm so sorry. My friend likes to pretend to be you to get me on the phone. Oh, really it's bad. just getting weirder and weirder. <laughs> <laughs> that was my That was my Tom Cruise story. Oh, so I so when I left uh, when I left Paramount, um, I'd always loved the horror movies and CA I was looking for a job and CA came to me and said, uh, an agent at CA, there's you know no real CA you know like <laughs> what the, is the CA? building the building <laughs> But they had they had uh, made a strategic alliance with this uh, horror magazine called Fangoria, and yeah. um, Richard Lovett, who's you guys know, is one of the partners at CA, had had, and he was ahead of his time because, mind you, this was ten years ago. Saw how in the genre space there was no brand, and in the future it was going to all be about branded entertainment. And with horror movies, they could be made for the return on investments. Great, they'd be made cost effectively. You break actors and actresses and directors. And so if you have a brand in that space, you could build it out and turn it into like a channel on DirecTV or whoever where people start to go, Fangoria, their horror movie, I'm going to go to that movie. So you build a brand. 
And so um, they hired me to be the president of the company. And these three guys owned Fangoria, the magazine, but they also owned a post house in New York. And uh, I won't get into the details, but see, we started doing everything that we had. A, we had a we were we had an output deal for at the time DVDs were huge, so we were going to do direct to title direct to DVD movies. We were a, a CA was putting together financing for a slate of movies through Michael London's company Groundswell, and all it was going great except that these three guys got into problems with their bankers. And in order to get out, out of their situation, put the company into bankruptcy. And um, the bad, one of the bad partners put the company into bankruptcy. And so by the time the good guy retained paper ownership of the company, the market had crashed and everything we were building was gone. Oh, that's a bummer. So that didn't work out. And then I just started going off and producing on my own. And I, I went back to New Line and, and got them to, do, uh, Friday, to reboot Friday the 13th. And then um, I did this little movie called Shortcut that Adam Sandler's brother wrote. Um, and Adam had loved the horror movie, so we were going to start a Scary Madison division <laughs> of Happy Madison. And then I, I had seen a short film called uh, Mama. It was by this, yeah. this mm-hmm. director. And uh, set that up at Universal. Um, and then they brought Guillermo on to do it with me. But Guillermo just kind of took over and ran it. I wasn't really that involved, but I got that going. And then I've just been, you know, independently producing. I did um, with Oren Pelly, who did Paranormal Activity. We wrote a treatment um, of, for Chernobyl Diaries. And then um, his agents got us financing, and we went and made it and um, did that. And then Warner Brothers picked it up. And um, I produced uh, Stephen King's Cell with John Cusick and Sam Jackson. And I'm currently producing a remake of The Blob with my buddy Richard Saperstein, who oh, was at New Line. Yeah, yeah. Um, with uh, Simon West directing and Sam Jackson starring. Nice. So what's it like coming, I mean, now as an independent producer, going back to a place like New Line, where you were in-house as an executive? Like, how does that... What's, yeah, like, what's the difference between being what's executive different? and yeah. doing it independently, entirely on your own? Uh, you don't have a weekly paycheck. <laughs> but besides that, I, which, what I love about producing is you're... You're just there from the beginning to the end, so you could be involved in the creative process. So, like Chernobyl Diaries um, stemmed out of a conversation that Oren and I had. Where Oren said, "You know, there's this town uh, outside of Chernobyl called Prepiet, which is an abandoned ghost town." And it was like we had been out to dinner for my birthday, and he mentioned it. And I went home and I looked up on Google, you know, Prepia, and it was an amazing town. It was great. It was abandoned. It looked like a ghost town. And so um, we then started hanging out and wrote a treatment based on this because they were tours. They were really were tours of Prepia. I don't think they do it anymore, but you can go and get tours. So we're like, oh, that's a great idea for a genre movie. So we wrote the treatment. We got the financing to go make it. Then we were involved in all the casting, the director. I went over and location scouted, found places, rewrote the script for the locations. We're in rehearsals. Every shooting, every night, every morning, selling it to Warner Brothers, marketing with Warner. Like, you're involved in everything, whereas when you're a studio executive, you're kind of tangentially involved. Right, there's someone else. There's another producer doing that work. You're just... It's even more hands-on. Yeah. Right. So I loved being, I love like the most, I hate development. The most exciting thing for me is when you're over, like when I was over in Belgrade and we were fu- looking for locations, 
and you, we found outside of Hungary, outside of, sorry, Budapest, there was this abandoned Russian military base from the exact same era of Prepyat. And the Russians, when the wall came down, just left. And it was streets, apartment buildings, abandoned fields, abandoned cafeteria, abandoned what, and and it just had a a landing strip that had grown over because the the Germans used to use, I mean, uh, the Russians used it to land. And you find that and you go, fucking A. Right, this thing that you've been imagining for so long. This starts to feel (laughs) real. That's exciting, right? Like, you guys are out, like, isn't it great when it starts coming together? It's it's probably one of the most fun things is like, it's, you have an idea in your head, but then you find the location. You always rework it to the location, especially working on the low budget side of things because you, that, that's how you get the production value and that's how you create that world even more by like finding the right location, just like clicking it together. But then also, you know, shifting the story a little bit to make it even better for that location. That's always fun. Yeah. Everything informs everything throughout where it's like, Oh, now this is real. And then you get an actor there and it becomes more real all the way to the end. And problem. So it's fun. Like, like super fun. Like, like I remember in uh, Chernobyl uh, diaries, there was a scene where the kids are exploring the apartment, the abandoned apartments. And we have a wild boar come, Oh, yeah. Ru- running at you and uh, they went out to animal wranglers and like wild boars there's one guy that has wild boars and they just they, they're untrainable i mean like they'll just start they'll eat you they'll just they can't <laughs> you can't train a wild boar and we're like oh, oh shit but but they have bears and the bears are trainable and we're like what wow, a bear bear running down the hall it makes weird but okay and then then I remember we met with the bear trainer, and so they said, so we said, well, how are we going to do this? And they said, well, bring the bear to the location. The bear will run down the hallway. And they start explaining, well, we don't, what we do is we don't feed the bear for three days. We keep it in a cage at the end of the hallway. And then we have a trainer with food on the other side of the camera. And so the bear will want to, you know, go eat. <laughs> And and it well, sounds like a great sounds plan. awful. Yeah. And we're like, I mean, what could go wrong? What, and we're like, well, how? What about the actors and actresses in the scene? Oh, and they 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 had it with us. There was a piece of wood with like not barbed wire, but wire on it. And um, this feels like a very specifically Hungarian way of doing. I doing guess this, I don't know, right? <laughs> and so the guy says, "Oh, well, the bear's been trained that." There's electrical volt that goes through this because that's how it's been trained previously. So when it sees that, it thinks that it's electrically charged, even though it's not, and you'll be fine. And we're like, what do you mean we'll be fine? We're going to put the actors and actresses on the set with this stick with wire. wire. And, head. and we're like, well, what's the backup? Well, there'll be a guy off stay, off with, a, with a, 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 a magnum or something, and he has to shoot it in the skull to stop it from doing it, because a shotgun blast wouldn't care the bear. Indie gotta, filmmaking. And we're like, whoa, <laughs> this is horrible. We're not <laughs> doing it. And then our, um, our director came from a visual effects background and was like, okay, we, we could... We had no money to make, to do the movie. I mean, we had very limited right, budget. Shoot a plate of the. And then we were like, okay, we could yeah. build a green screen hallway. Shoot the bear, the trainer. They could do their little thing, and it's all safe. And it it, it ended up working. But the point I'm telling that story is, I loved being involved in figuring out the process. Like, okay, no boar can't do that. We need something. A, you know, a dog is lame. They didn't have big wolves. That looked lame. 
And then you just kind of figure out how to make it all work. And you couldn't, as an executive, yeah. I would go, like, I, w- I would still, as an executive, which started at New Line, I would go wherever we were shooting for the first week of shooting or wherever. Like when we did Dark City, I flew to Australia for a week to hang out. But when you're visiting a set, it's very different than being when you're involved, the like producer in on the yeah. set, because you're you're just aware of all the moving parts. Everyone's showing you stuff. You're seeing. I mean, maybe there's a little problem solving. Like usually, it's about budget. Mm-hmm. If you happen to be visiting, but when you're a producer, you got to figure it all out. And as you guys know, when you're making a movie, particularly at the level we're talking about, you're done. Like if you're not out of that location, oh yeah. By the end, you and tomorrow you have a turnaround and you're shooting right, they're like very night somewhere else. Yeah. You're done. You're not going back. Mm-hmm. So I liked all that. I liked that energy of yeah, of the co- intensity of that. It feels like a real nice flip side to the PA conversation earlier, where it was like you go on set, you get to see it all from the, the outside, and now you're literally on the other end of the same spectrum. Totally. And I believe, in hindsight, like every studio executive should go produce a movie because I didn't. I didn't learn till being a producer where you guys are talking about location scouting, but like when all of a sudden as a studio executive, you get like whatever blue pages or pink or green or yellow and the filmmakers have changed the scene and And there's no context for why it's changed. Why, why was the scene changed? It was supposed to be in a bathtub. Well, we couldn't have a bathtub on set. Didn't work. The location, whatever the scene in the blocking, because inevitably you go to the location and walk through it doesn't work so you have to change it and you might as an executive become beholden to a certain thing dialogue scene and you don't know the context right and as a producer you go oh okay i i get it now i see why things happen what do you think are the kind of keys to to a successful collaboration because that's that's the other thing that's really unique about being a producer and you just said it is that you you do interact with every department i mean you're you're obviously instrumental in bringing that team together and really creating the machine that gets the well, movie Well, and you become the person who made. everybody knows that they can go to for something. Mm-hmm. Right. So what do you look for, number one, in a project before you kind of decide to develop it? And then number two, like, what do you, what do you look for when in, in, in the team that you're designing? What do you kind of chase to help design the most effective team of creators? Well, it, to me, it's just, if I, if I like it, you know, if the material, I, I, you know, gut reaction. If I like it, if it's a comedy, is it funny? The characters work? Is it scary? Is it whatever? You know, I'm working on a little movie that um, Gus Van Zant's executive producing, a writing protege of his is has written it and, and directed and is directing it, and it was just this great. It's like a, it's like a, um, how would you describe it? Bring It On meets um, uh, Juno. Mm-hmm. It's this little movie about a carrot boy in high school, fish out of water, and he gets into this dancing thing and finds himself, even though his father's this masculine gun touting. Like it's a, it was a great character piece, and I loved it. I thought it was really it's really cool, and and it had emotion to it. So the, even though the movies I've been doing now are mostly genre movies, I love that. I thought that was a great project. So it all. I'm not really answering your question. But no, no, that's, I mean, that's a hundred, that's a hundred percent, right? Like it doesn't, and what's so cool, it sounds like in your position, you don't have to, oftentimes we talk about the challenge of doing something and becoming known as the people that just do that, do that one thing. And it sounds like obviously through, throughout your career as a, as a producer and an executive that you've got, you, you, you got to do 
sci-fi, horror, comedy. I mean, you really explore every every genre, and it sounds like you, you have just... to fight to do that, or is that something that just is open on your end? At, uh, at the like to be able to like if we were like, hey, we want to go do a broad comedy, it would be like, um, well, why? Whereas, well, if it was good, you, it's good. Who right. Cares? So from your end, it can be like, if it's good, I get to make. Yeah. Right I on. mean. R- now, yes, if it, you know, like I, I, when I was at a studio, it would be, you know, like as you say that, I think of, because, you know, you guys started doing genre stuff, but that was, you know, you've, you've obviously evolved from it. But I, I remember at New Line, we had seen uh, a Blair Witch before it blew up and thought it was fucking awesome. And so I was meeting with the guys and DeLuke was like, we'll do whatever they want. Just whatever they want. Just let's, and they came in. And they pitched me like over the top broad comedy that was they and you're like no 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 you, you made a genre movie that's right, your first right. thing you gotta kind of you do have to play stick in that sandbox for a bit yeah and they you know pitched they sent me stuff that was like comedy and it didn't like you know couldn't do it but right. but over time you could do it like it to me it's whatever you you you, you know. Whatever's good. Yeah, it's also building up a certain amount of credibility, and I once once you have that, it starts to kind of you can do more with it. But if if you just make one thing and it's a success, then I think people come to you, right? They reach out to you because of that, and I, I think to a certain extent because they want more of the same. Yeah. You know, as a producer, do you get pigeonholed into like like in like terms of getting your next movie made? Does it have to be similar to your last movie or will, because you find some, you know, material that you like and, you know, react to well, is the process the same or do you get stuck in some kind of like rut? Not, not in some kind of rut, but it depends on the project because if the ones I've been doing like Chernobyl or The Blob or Cell, those are all done independently with private equity based on foreign sales and other things. So unfortunately, comedy is a bit trickier because... It just doesn't, doesn't translate internationally. Yeah. yeah. So, but but if it's a good comedy, then you just attack it differently. You go to a studio, you go to a financier, you you find elements that make sense, and then you kind of build your package on top of it instead of here's the blob. It's a remake of it's the blob. Let's remake it. It has a built-in you know audience. People know it globally because it's the blob, and then you build your you know your elements from there. But I you know could be anything. The only thing I've had difficulty is, but I haven't really done it, is when I was a studio executive, I did do like tent pulse, you would call tent pulse stuff. Like I bought G.I. Joe, right, Transformers, bought Transformers. Yeah. I was the executive on Mission 3. Um, so I really haven't done that as an independent producer. So then in terms of designing the team of, of creators, do oh. you just follow that same intuition when you're putting together that machine? Well, for example, it, I mean, to me, it, it's project by project. We when we were when Orn and I were doing Chernobyl Diaries, we had uh, three and a half million dollars to make the movie, so we knew what we had. That was it. The bank, the investors, that was it. So we knew what we had, and we both are. You guys have met Orn. We're pretty egoless people, and and so we were in our mind the way that the only way we can make a movie like this work is we were trying to also do it a bit more than what the budget was in terms of our our feel for it was you have to find a bunch of people that will do whatever it takes to get done. Like, I don't care if I have to go run and hold a grip stand or do this. I right. mean, 
one night on Chernobyl, I we the actors were cold and the so PA was taking too long to find heaters, so I was running around getting heaters. It didn't. It wasn't like I'm the producer. Yeah, it's Someone, all hands on deck. So, but so Orin and I specifically our our modus operandi for that was we were going to find people that um, were on the same mindset, and the mindset was we're all, our thinking was we're all going to go camping and we're going to make a movie. So whatever it takes to get it done needed to get done. If I need to go do he whatever, and so we, I remember when we were meeting with line producers, there were some line producers I won't name because they they're incredibly competent at their jobs. But they were, you could tell that they needed a system of other right. people below them that they couldn't get their hands dirty themselves. They came from making bigger movies and they worked in a certain way. And so if their mindset uh, is at that, then that's going to ripple down to right. your crew, which right. is not going to work for us. Whereas we met, you know, the guy that we ended up getting, the two different guys, Rob Cowan and Richard Sharkey. They came from a, they were ready to get their hands dirty and whatever it needed to do, we'll figure out and we're going to find the best people. And so we ended up, that's what we attracted because that's what we wanted. And, you know, like when we got down to um, Belgrade, we had a, 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 a local sound guy and you guys know how important sound is that our local services people found. And this guy literally had done like DJing sound at clubs like he had no experience in our world but our local line producer knew the guy that had won or got nominated for the oscar for hurt locker and guess what he was available and bam bam and it all worked and he when we met him we were afraid he wouldn't understand what we were doing because he was used to doing these bigger movies and he said he got it and then once we started shooting he started to have problems because we're out in the freezing cold and there's only limited resources we can do to protect you. And so I remember he wanted to leave at one point and I had to sit down with him and we had to figure out how to make it all work. And he was like, okay. And we figured out how within our mindset it would work and, and it was fine. It was amazing. It was actually phenomenal. That's great. So it's finding those like-minded people per, on a per project. that you know, yeah. level, whereas, you know, The Blob is a different movie. We, you know, Simon West is directing it. We're fond a great visual effects company, tax credit. It's a different mindset. We know what we need to do to create that movie, and it will be, you know. Do you have a preference of, of just in terms of the size of a film that you love to make? Like, is there a sort of sweet spot? Because obviously, you know, with more money, there are, you can bring in more resources, but the production itself gets larger, which means there are more variables, more things can fall apart. Is there is there a sort of sweet spot that you kind of particularly love to produce at? Don't know. I've only done, you know, the most, you know, was like Cell, which was like 17 million, um, 16, something like that. So I haven't done huge, that's probably the most expensive. And that was more, I mean, I did it with my friend Richard Saperstein, but he really was point on it. Mm -hmm. But uh so I don't know. I would I would like more money so you could be a little, <laughs> yeah. you know, less, you know. But it all depends. I watch I watch movies like uh what did I see recently? Or any of those Marvel movies. And that looks like a fun. Like when I worked back from back to, you know, it goes back to Joel. I remember on Demolition Man, Joel had found out that the Department of Water and Power were blowing or uh, demolishing their old building in downtown LA. 
and location manager found that bit of information out and did we want to use it in the movie and uh there's a set piece that we constructed all around the beginning of demolition man where we we didn't implode it but the city of la demolition company did and then we filmed it and used it in the movie and there was something fucking awesomely cool about that like you're waiting all night they're rigging it with explosives you got the cameras you're not allowed to be right near it because obviously it's gonna explode (laughs) and you have to go back like there's something fun about that. And then they blow up the fucking building and then you, we could all come in and see the, like, that was cool. Like, there was just, but I guess it was also back at a time where we used real helicopters. Like, I remember right. in, in Predator 2 where there's a sequence in downtown LA where we were shooting it with outside the Predator thing and the helicopters overhead and these big helicopters are, you know, like overhead and they're landing down and the guys are running out and that was fun. They don't, yeah, now it's all digital. To achieve that same effect now, you're, yeah, you're, it's a totally different, you would never, totally different thing. I don't think you'd ever blow up a real building now. (laughs) Yeah. You just do it digitally, right? Yeah. 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 But like, when, so that sort of stuff to me was so, Doing a big movie would be a lot of fun because, or even chase sequences. I remember on Lethal Weapon, we closed down a freeway. Like a fucking freeway is closed down, and you show up and there are, you know, like stunt guys and this and the, and the cars and like. Yeah, it's, it's a real experience. Yeah, it's yeah. like when you're making Chernobyl Diaries, you're not doing shit like that. Yeah, the level of make believe is huge. So it's fun. So I would do either, but. <laughs> Would you would you ever go back to the studio, John? Or are you do you just is it? I would go the right place totally. I mean, like it's very difficult doing the, that. This sounds cool, but like doing independent producing is not. It's like the thing about producing is you only get paid as you guys know. Well, right. you get paid as writers, but as a producer, you only get paid when you actually make something. So. I have TV series in development at Universal, another one at Fremantle. I had a TV series with at Lionsgate with James Wan and all these things you have all over town, a sequel to Mama 2, whatever. You only get paid when you're making it. Right. We actually talk about that a lot, like how you can have the, like what a, the difference between a cultural success and actually being able to support yourselves is there's a pretty huge gap like between, between that. <laughs> You know, like to have something set up, to have to be attached to a really cool piece of material is something that is insane and feels wonderful. But like you were saying, it doesn't until that's getting made, until that's actually real, it's it's just a really cool it's just a really cool thing to talk about. <laughs> it like doesn't no, you're support right. you. But it's true. Yeah. Like you, you I I have friends that they get and, and granted I would too get excited like when they when they say in the trades you set up something somewhere and whatever but in reality it's fucking meaningless until you're being it's being made yeah yeah 100%. like we can all go back and look at tons of things that were announced that were never made do you what's your one that you were that you got far along that didn't happen is there one is there like the great white whale what's your moby dick project that just got away from you as a studio executive or any any, anything like is there something that you were just like fuck man we should that has to happen Uh, more than two but but when i was at paramount uh, my first month working there uh my friend uh, roy lee gave me a little movie a japanese movie called the ring and I watched it and said, thought, this is fucking awesome. The concept of kid, meh, video, oh, yeah. dies. 
And when I was at New Line, I had done um, Final Destination. And I love horror movies. Like, I, when I went to NYU, I wanted to be... I, I remember saying to my teachers, I want to do for movies what Stephen King did for books. I wanted to be the friggin' horror guy. So when I was at New Line... I bought a couple of horror things, but not many because I didn't find anything that I was that excited about, except for Final Destination, which I love that premise. So when I saw The Ring, I was like, this is fantastic. And so I went into my boss, John Goldwyn, and uh, I had it before anyone else. And I said, you, we, we got it. We got it. We got to do this. We got it. It's great. Told him the concept. He's like, okay, let me watch it. And he goes, well, how much is it going to be? And I think at the time, Roy said that we could option it for $25,000, which you guys know is not... Yeah, it's not bad, and it would have been against the purchase price of probably two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and so John goes, "Okay, I'll watch it," and then it comes the Friday, Monday. Did you watch it? No, I haven't had a chance to watch it. I'm like, "Please, you got to. It's great." I now download for him um, synopsis online that I found about it. I wrote him an email or a memo about like how much you know, like we should do this. I, you know, using what I said to you guys about Final Destination and how that worked. This premise, blah blah blah. He's like, I promise you I'll watch it. Another week, doesn't watch it. And so now we're three weeks in to where I had it exclusively. And now Roy tells me uh, DreamWorks, is, Mark Sorian is going to watch it. I'm like, okay, I, you know, I keep telling John to watch it. I, thanks for covering me, but what can I do? And so I'm like, John, he gave it to DreamWorks. You got you to watch it because I, I promise I'll watch it. And then Mark Sorian watches it immediately. He loves it. He tells uh, his boss at the time, Walter Parks, about it. And I go, Walter's good. They're sending him the video wherever he is. He's going to watch it. Now we're, you know, fourth week, I think, or so of me having it. And just like, I promise I'll watch it this weekend. John doesn't watch it. And then that Monday, uh, Roy calls me and says, uh, DreamWorks just spent the million dollars for it. And, and huh. John, and I tell John, he goes, well, I would never spend a million dollars. And I've only been there a month or so. And I'm like thinking... No, no. When I told you about it, we could have it for twenty five thousand dollars. What are you talking? We, we never would have spent a million dollars. We right. we had it, and so we didn't didn't do that. And then when year a year, however later, because I was still working there, they the TV spots and trailers came up. To John's credit, he said, "I made a mistake. I should have let you buy that." So that was one. Oh, God, I can think of a bunch. The Departed I had before anyone else, but it was called. Um, Roy gave that to me too. It was called um, Infernal Affairs. Infernal Affairs. Had it before anyone else. Loved it. Wanted to do it. They no one. We just didn't focus in time. Um, and then one uh, another that I still love, which I think they're finally making, is um, Kath, uh, uh, Paul Wagner and Tom Cruise wanted to buy this book, which we bought called The Devil in the White City. Oh yeah. Um, and Catherine Bigelow was attached to direct it, and her writing partner at the time was. Chris Kyle, I think it was the guy's name. Um, and they came in with an amazing pitch. I love the book. So you guys read the book? Yeah. So I read that book. I'm like, as an executive, I'm like, this is amazing. It's the, here the majesty of the World's Fair, crazy genius serial killer. The two stories collide. Brilliant. And so Catherine came in, amazing pitch, amazing treatment. And then her and, and Chris Kyle went off to write the script. And then when they presented the script, it, it bore no resemblance to the book. It was like a, something else. And we were like, oh. So I didn't get that, but I love that. It's getting made now with Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah, it's a great yeah. book. Scorsese directing too, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then 
I'm trying to think as a producer. There was yeah, there were a couple as a producer where, like, um, the Mark the 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 Max Landis spec that sold for deeper for a ton of money. Oh yeah. So Max and I were were friends, and he was telling me about it. And one night he texted me and he goes, "What are you doing?" I'm like, "Nothing." He goes, "Okay, I'm sending you 25 pages. You need to read it right now in the dark." I'm like, okay. So I turn off all my rights and I'm on my lights and I read on my iPad the first 25 pages of Deeper. And then I told him how amazing it was. And each night I, I would come home, I had nothing to do. He would send me pages. So each night I, he'd send me trunks of 25 pages. And so by the end, I was like, this is fucking awesome. I love this. I want to produce it. And then uh, they ended up going with David Goyer, who he had worked with and had more experience. So that was a bummer because it was a great script. Would you ever direct something? Like, is that, is that something that's, like, in the cards for you? No? I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. What do you... I mean, like, what's the... I mean... That's it, not the right answer if you want to do it. But, like, what's the... But, <laughs> I mean... But it sounds... I mean, obviously, they're producing and directing are different, but you have access to that process as a producer. What's, what is it about... What is it about producing that makes it, like, a better fit for you that's different than, say, like, you know, directing? Maybe I'm just... Do you like having multiple... I mean, because... I like, like doing multiple things. things. I probably have time? some sort of a, a, a ADD. <laughs> Maybe that... Fo- I don't know. Maybe one thing. I don't know. I want... When I... Where was it? When I left Joel Silver, I had become friends with Robert... Like, I knew Robert Rodriguez from El Mariachi when it was passed around Hollywood, and, it, and he and I would go out to San Gabriel with George Wang, who directed Swing with Sharks. So we were all buddies. And then when I left Joel, I had some friends of mine had given me this cool script called Life Without Joe. It was a horror script. And I wanted Robert to direct it. And I gave it to him and he read it. And I went to his house and I, he was like, ah, I don't like it. And I kept trying to pitch it to him, like, why you should do it. I'm like, this, that. And he goes, you seem to really have it in your head. Why don't you direct it? I, I never thought of directing. And then I left and I called my friend George who had directed Swimming with Sharks. And I go, yeah, I went to Robert. And he goes, well, why not do it? Try to do it. And then I went back to Robert and said, you know, I, want, I, I had never thought of directing. You're right. I, I really do have a sense of this one. And I said, well, why don't you produce it for me to help me? And he goes, oh, no, 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 I can't do that. I did it all on my own. You need to go figure it out by yourself. I'm like, yeah, yeah, but it was your idea. It's a good idea. I need some help. He goes, no, 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 you just, you got to go do it on your own. Is that script still around? Yeah. Fucking direct Make it. Make it happen. <laughs> I, don't know if it's, I don't know if it's doable. We'll produce it. We'll produce it for you. <laughs> So that was our conversation with Brian Winton, and we just want to like thank Brian again for coming on the show. We had a lot of fun thank talking you, to him. Coming on the show. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Brian. A lot Brian. of fun talking to you. There you go. Um, next week we got. So next week we're going to talk to Frank Barker, uh, who's a copywriter, works in uh, movie marketing and, and promotions. Frank and I are good buddies. We go way back. Used to work together when we both worked in trailers. Uh, Frank has written for campaigns like Finding Dory and X-Men Apocalypse, and the Purge election year. So yeah, it's a pretty cool conversation that's a a little different than some of the things we've already talked about, so I'm really excited for it. Make sure to check us out online. Check out our website, uh, highradiosilence.com. You can find the team on all your favorite social media, at High Radio Silence, and then you can download and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app. Thanks, guys.